It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Well, welcome to the Jason in the House podcast. I'm Jason Chaffetz, and uh, I think you're going to like the podcast this week. We got some good things. We got some thoughts on the news, going to riff on the news. We got to uh, highlight the stupid because, as you know, there's always somebody doing something stupid somewhere. And then we're going to phone a friend, and we've got Lee Zeldin, Congressman Lee Zeldin from the great state of New York. He's decided to throw his hat in the ring. He's going to be running for the governor of New York. I served with him in the United States Congress, and we're going to have a conversation about why he is who he is. What are those things that formed who Lee Zeldin is? And I think you're going to hear some stories about him and his background that are just absolutely fascinating. So stay tuned for that. But I want to kick things off by uh, getting after two things. And uh, as I told you, I just, you know, I, I recently wrote a book, They Never Let a Crisis Go to Waste. The Truth About Disaster Liberalism. Uh, They never let a crisis go to waste. It's true. It's true. It's true. This is the way Washington, D.C. and the Democrats roll. Um, But uh, nothing probably exemplifies that more than what Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are doing, which is really kind of Obama 3.0 in terms of how they're dealing with czars. If you recall, in the Obama-Biden administration, there were a lot of czars. What did that mean? Like, why were they calling them czars? Well, normally in our process, the cabinet secretaries and other distinguished people within the administration that have a lot of authority to spend money and direct traffic and do that type of thing, uh, they have to go through a Senate confirmation process. But what Biden has figured out, and he learned it from the best in Barack Obama, is that if you appoint these so-called quote-unquote czars, they can bypass the messy transparency of Senate confirmation. So even though you may have somebody who has uh, a great deal of authority, but you just don't want them to have to fill out the financial forms. You don't want to have to have them go through the ethics forms. You don't want to have to have a vote. You don't want to have them answer to the senators. And yeah, you just go ahead and designate them as, as a czar. So I wrote an op-ed for foxnews.com, which you can find out there. Um, And it's bad enough that Jennifer Granholm, who is Biden's energy secretary, who did go through the Senate confirmation, um, she noted that she owns a lot of stock in an electric battery and vehicle maker called Proterra. Now, she promised the Senate, of course, that she was going to Uh, sell that stock and get out of that so she didn't have any conflicts. But as the New York Post recently noted, like just recently, uh, she hasn't done that. So that's bad enough that they're just kind of blowing by because I think they know the traditional media will not make hay about this. And who in the Biden administration is going to hold somebody in the Biden administration accountable? It's just not going to happen. But I go through and I highlight, for instance, Avi Garbo, I think that's how you pronounce his name. Uh, He was the longest running uh, general counsel at the Environmental Protection Agency. Well, Senator Marsha Blackburn wanted to learn more about his new position now because he was joining the Biden administration, not as the general counsel, but as this 
special designation. And so when Senator Blackburn asked for his paperwork, the EPA came back and said, nah, well, you know, he's a special government employee, doesn't have to do the ethics forms, conflict of interest is not an issue. But as Senator Blackburn pointed out, um, he used to work at Patagonia. And Patagonia was funding and a participant in all kinds of lawsuits. And so to try to untangle that, the EPA is just kind of thumbing the nose and saying, no, we don't need to do that. Then, of course, the Biden-Harris administration appointed John Kerry. Uh, he was the former Secretary of State. He was the former senator from Massachusetts. But now he's got this uh, you know, new title as one of the czars that's, uh, that's doing things again. No paperwork, no conflicts of interest. He's flying his private jet, doing whatever he wants to do. Uh, Gina McCarthy, who was the former administrator at the EPA, one of the just totally failed on Flint water. Uh, we had the the uh, uh, water disaster at the gold mine that was just absolutely abysmal. Uh, it's called the Gold King Mine Disaster, officially. These are all people that are, quote-unquote, czars, and this is how I think you're going to continue to see and hear in the news, at least in the Fox News world, more about how the Biden-Harris administration is skirting the Senate confirmation process. I've only seen Senator Blackburn uh, there from Tennessee trying to hold the administration accountable on this. But if Republicans get their act together, I think there'll be more of a chorus saying, hey, you can't just put these people in these senior positions directing traffic, spending all this money and directing cabinet secretaries to do things without the Senate confirmation. But again, that's what's going on. The second thing that I wanted to just mention as we kind of kick off this podcast is you're going to hear a lot from Ah, the Biden world. They're going to talk about paying your fair share and about Jeff Bezos at Amazon and some of these other multi-billionaires about how they need to pay their fair share. And, you know, they're going to complain about the tax code and how unfair it is and how unfair it is. But, you know, let's remember Joe Biden was in the Senate for 40 plus years. He was the vice president for eight years. Somehow, some way, the tax code that we ended up, he seems to think that he has nothing to do with it. But you know what? What I want people to understand and know about the tax code, while they talk about raising the capital gains tax, and I don't want people's eyes to start to glaze over with all these tax numbers and whatnot, just remember this. When Trump and the Republicans were able to cut taxes, it benefited everybody. And guess what? The revenue to the Treasury went up. It didn't go down. It is a fallacy to say that, oh, we're going to raise taxes. That means government will have more money to spend. That just means that you as the individual will have less money to spend. Government can print whatever money that it wants. And that's the problem. I think the consequence of this is going to be rapid inflation. You're seeing it in the gas prices. You're seeing it in the housing market. You're going to start to see it at the grocery store. You've got others that have already announced, pre-announced, that they're going to have to raise prices because the pure definition of inflation is too much money chasing too few goods. And when you throw trillions of dollars of government money into this mix, you're going to have inflation, which is in large part the cruelest form of taxation. Because those people that are on a fixed income, those people that have um, a lower income, 
they are the most impacted by this. People that are so-called, quote-unquote, rich, they just absorb it. They just move on. High gas prices doesn't even phase them. But the bottom line is it doesn't give government more money to operate with. Again, look at what happened with Trump and the Republicans when they cut taxes, allowed the American people to keep more of their money in their own wallets. Revenue to the Treasury went higher because people ended up spending it and buying things. Employers hired people. Those types of things happen when they hire more people. Guess what? More people are paying taxes. So you're going to hear a lot of this discussion, and I hope people's eyes just don't glaze over because it will affect every single American. All right, time to bring on the stupid. Because there's always somebody doing something stupid somewhere. Since the uh, State of the Union is going to be here tonight, I thought I would talk about how stupid, stupid, stupid it is what Nancy Pelosi is doing in the House of Representatives, where you're supposed to, as a member of Congress, walk through a metal detector in order to get on the floor of the House. Of course, Nancy Pelosi hasn't done that. Um, even uh, Whip Clyburn uh, in Democratic leadership didn't do it. And now they're fining members of Congress $5,000 for not walking through this. They have caught Nancy Pelosi from going through another door, bypassing this. And a lot of members have got together and say, you know what? Every member of Congress should be treated the same, including you, Nancy Pelosi. I just think it's stupid beyond belief that they got to go in there and have to walk through a metal detector. You can go anywhere else. Uh, you can go uh, as a member of Congress, but no, under the floor of the House, they just, the Democrats came up with, oh, let's do a metal detector. All right. That, to me, is just flat out stupid. Now they're going to start finding $5,000. Nancy Pelosi, you ought to pay your $5,000. All right. And number two comes from the smokinggun.com, one of my favorite news sites, just hard-hitting news there. We have two people, and they decided that they were a little bit hungry. So in Evansville, and I think this is Indiana, but I'm not 100% sure. Evidently, the Denny's there closes at like 11 p.m. Now, most Denny's I know, they're up and open much later, if not 24 hours a day. But this one closed kind of kind of early, uh, early for me, which would be 11 p.m. But at 2.02 in the morning, according to the police report, they – Two individuals went into the kitchen and prepared some eggs. The duo left a few minutes later. Then they returned at 2.58 because they obviously didn't make enough eggs. They made more eggs, and they departed the Denny's at 3.04 in the uh, in the morning. Um, they were confronted by some Denny's workers, and evidently the suspects just decided, hey, man, we're just hungry. They just had the munchies. Total estimated loss, according to this police report, as reported in the smokinggun.com, $1. $1 was the charge. You know, if you just go to 7-Eleven, you could put a burrito in there and just put it in the microwave and get an egg burrito. But no, nope, had to break into the Denny's to make some eggs. I'm guessing those guys may have, may have been under the influence a little bit. I'm just guessing. No allegation there. I'm just guessing. I don't think they were arrested. I don't think they've been charged, but... Man, eggs at Denny's does sound good, doesn't it? Well, that's the stupid for this week. All right, so I wanted to tell you about some, uh, I like to tell stories from my time in Congress, but I'm going to reach back. I was also the chief of staff to the governor of Utah, Governor Huntsman. Uh, owe a lot to him allowing me to, to be on his campaign, then be the campaign manager. And when he won, he named me the chief of staff. 
And so as chief of staff to the governor, you get to do some interesting things. But, you know, one of my most embarrassing moments, I like to ask the guests on the podcast, hey, what's your most embarrassing moment? Perhaps mine had to do with uh, one of the jobs and the tasks the governor had asked me to do. Now, as the chief of staff to the governor, um, you know, National Guardsmen, Highway Patrol, uh, they were, you know, they referred to me as Chief Chaffetz. Doesn't that just flow off the tongue? Well, um, I remember talking to my wife and said, you know, don't, like, you can't laugh. If, if a Highway Patrolman or a National Guardsman says that, you just can't laugh, you know? She's like, all right, let's try it. You know, Chief Chaffetz, hey, why don't you go on out and take out the garbage? You know, <laughs> yeah, well, all right, that was pretty funny, Julie. That was good. But perhaps my most embarrassing story, most embarrassing moment, just a couple of months into this administration, the local Indian tribes uh, were coming together and the governor just physically could not go. And as I recall, I think there were nine tribes that showed up and they decided to go around the room. And each of the chiefs decided to introduce themselves. Now, these gentlemen had a lot more age than I did in my 30s and had seen a lot more of life than I have. And they went all around the room one at a time, introduced themselves until the moderator said, well, now we would like to introduce, you guessed it, Chief Chaffetz. And I have never felt so small and embarrassed in my life. Unbelievably embarrassing that as a 30-something-year-old, Chief Chaffetz was now going to talk to some real uh, people with some real significance in real titles, and I felt so embarrassed, as I probably should have. All right, let's get on with things because I'm really excited to call a friend of mine. The guy has done amazing things. He serves in the United States Congress. He served our country, and I'm just thrilled to give Lee Zeldin, who's now running for governor of New York, let's give him a ring and get him on the line. Hello, this is Lee. Lee, hey, Jason Chaffetz. I got to be calling you Congressman. Hey, hey, Jason. Congressman Lee Zeldin on this official podcast and maybe soon Governor uh, Zeldin. I'm excited for you. You know, I got to serve with Lee Zeldin in the United States Congress. And, you know, it just made going to work and being there in Washington, D.C. that much more palatable and fun and enjoyable. Um, you know, you get to go and interact with people like Tim Scott and Trey Gowdy and Lee Zeldin and I'm just thrilled to catch you at home and talk a little bit more and and thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thrilled to be on with you. Thanks, Jason. And uh you're not such a bad guy yourself. I enjoyed serving with you. Uh it was important when you you had that chairmanship uh to make the most of that gavel. Oversight over the Obama administration was uh, so key, and uh, you took your job incredibly seriously, and I'm thrilled to see that uh, you're at Fox now and uh, really doing a great job. Everyone's very proud of you. Well, thanks. I do miss the the daily interactions, and, you know, I liked hanging out with you, but I actually love my wife even more. So, um, But <laughs> you're not in a position you, – you have this beautiful, wonderful wife, uh, Diana. You got two of the cutest little kids in the world who – when I first met them, were little, and now they're getting to be young women, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that. So, the congressman uh, represents New York's first congressional district. Uh, he's an attorney by trade, 
Um, he served there in, in New York uh, as a senator in the state uh, Senate. Um, but he's out there on Long Island, and now he's taking this, this uh, jump into the deep end by running as a Republican for governor uh, in the state of New York. But, Lee, what I really want to do is I want to go back because I don't want to, you know, we can dive into policies and issues, and I got to, like, you know, an untold number of issues on about Governor Cuomo and why he has been disastrous for New York, and I know you do too. But I want to go back and get to know the Lee Zeldin, like as a little kid, like you were born, you know, and your first memories. And really, at the end of the day, what I want people to understand is how you became you. You know, I, I, I really do believe that people's experiences in life, some are good, some are really hard and difficult. They make you and they form your character. And, you know, you served in our military, you served in Iraq, you were a lieutenant colonel, you're serving in Congress, you got this beautiful, wonderful family. But let's go back before you even knew Diana and, and, and that whole part of your family. Tell us about your family and what it was like growing up as a, as a little boy there in New York. So I, I was born on and raised on Long Island, and uh, I was an only child with parents divorced and remarried, so four parents grown up. And I would spend the weeks with my uh, mother and stepfather and the weekends with my father and stepmother. My mother was a, a school teacher at the time. My stepfather was a New York State trooper. Stepmother was a Nassau County probation officer. My father uh, was a businessman in the security world. And uh, maybe it was my first foray, foray you could say, into... Uh, politics in that parents wanted to uh, spend time with me and I was trying to negotiate peace uh, at moments between the, the four parents. Uh, you learn traits from all of them. I grew up in a school district where two-thirds of the class qualified for free and reduced lunch. Nobody was given anything in life. You had to go out and earn it. Uh, it's actually the same school district that now my daughters go to school in. And uh, you've known Michaela and Ariana as they've grown up through the years. Now they're in, in high school, in ninth grade. They go to the same high school uh, that I went to and I graduated from uh, when I was their age. And uh, you know, it was uh, a great upbringing on Long Island. A lot of time spent on the water, fishing, time uh, at the beach. I went to college and law school up in Albany. That's where I did Army ROTC, commissioned as a second lieutenant in the Military Intelligence Corps in 2003 on active duty at Fort Huachuca, Arizona. Uh, and then I switched over to the JAG Corps and uh, went to Fort Bragg, North Carolina, deployed to Iraq in 2006 with the 82nd Airborne Division. And it was during that time that I uh, met Diana. We had uh, twin girls, Michaela and Ariana. Uh, wait, wait. Let's let's go. Let's go back here for a second. You're you're deployed, and that's where you met Diana. What was oh, she doing no. there? No, at Fort Bragg is when I met Diana. Ah, uh, no, but actually, while I was in Iraq, Diana uh, was pregnant and actually went into labor in her 22nd week while I was in Iraq. Okay, uh, now so wait very, a sec. This this part of the story, Lee, is an amazing part of the story. But I want to go back. I want to go back to those awkward you know, sixth grade years, okay? 
You know, I had a friend of mine, Mike Maurer, he once said to me when he was asked the question, what's your most awkward time in life? And he said, sixth through 12th grade. And I yeah, believe oh, yeah. that. I think every kid is going through an awkward time in life. But you're learning things. Like, you are a conservative person. I know you're a compassionate person. I know you care about people. But you also have this conservative backbone. Where did that come from? Like, what was happening early in your life that made you think that, you know, personal responsibility is kind of a good thing? You know, growing up with in, inside of a law enforcement family, you have respect for rule of law, a passion for country and flag and freedom and liberty. Uh, my, I had an uncle, I remember, going to Camp Pendleton, and I have this great photo when I'm two years old. And he's teaching me how to do a sit-up, and I was wearing those ridiculous <laughs> short shorts and those colored tube socks. And uh, it was maybe my first sit-up that I ever did. Uh, a long <laughs> military career was ahead of me. I obviously wasn't aware of that. Family wasn't aware of it then. But, you know, it's it's just love of a community and country. And I learned about uh, selfless sacrifice and uh, and making a difference. And, now, it was uh, thrilled to serve. Now, as an only child, like my dad was an only child, but I had my brother Alex that I leaned on. Who, who what was informed? Like, who was you, your parents? Your best friends? Did you have a buddy or a, some a neighbor that you leaned on that you learned things from? Yeah, I had some really good friends in school, and uh, I remember I had one friend all going back to kindergarten, first grade, who I'm still in touch with, Adam. Uh, we did. Uh, karate. Uh, I'm actually a black belt in Taekwondo. I once you are. The, Still. I once won the world championships in sparring when I was 12 years old. True story. Really? Uh, I had no yeah. idea. Yeah, I played the piano growing up, so I, that kept me busy. Uh, and I like to volunteer time. I remember going to a local nursing home when I was in grade school, and they had a bunch of uh, residents at this nursing home who uh, wouldn't they, they wouldn't move at all. I mean, if you were talking to them, it, there was just no physical acknowledgement <laughs> of you even being there. And I remember playing the piano once, and I came back, and I had to do it over and over again after the first experience because it was so amazing. And I was playing songs on the piano, and these, uh, these uh, men and women, uh, much older and, and never engaged with me otherwise when I volunteered, I remember a whole bunch of them starting to nod their head uh, to the music. And, uh, and I remember thinking to myself, this is awesome. And uh, I loved it. I mean, it wasn't you know, more engagement than them nodding their heads, but uh, you could tell that I was, I was making their day and, and I loved it. But yeah, growing up, I had a bunch of friends through school. Um, and you know, I was, you know, many of them I stayed in touch with still to this day. You know, um... I had an experience. You talk about going to visit um, kind of a retirement home there. And, and my, my grandfather, I believe it was Alzheimer's. And, you know, he used to be, he was an FBI agent. He was tough, you know. And, you know, by the time I'm turning 16 years old, he's in a, he's in a hospice care. And I, I remember going to visit him and, and just wanting to go visit and interact with him and it being so frail in the way that he was. And, you know, I really think it's important that kids, you know, when they're in their teenage years, have an experience like that because it sticks with you forever. I mean, I ask you that question, and it's one of the very first things that pops up in your mind. And 
And I know if your parents probably didn't push you to go, you probably wouldn't have done it. But I think that's true in life. I think that's true. You're pushed to do things at young age, like get a job and do things like that. And and they stick with you. They 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 build the character of who you are, who you are. So you you were playing the piano. You were kicking people's butt in karate. I I didn't know. I was looking at you. I wouldn't have thought you could have kicked my butt, but you probably could have. Um, well, I won't take that the wrong way. That judging by looking at me. <laughs> I well, I wouldn't have guessed it. I would have guessed so my, that you know. But what was oh, your man. first so job? I, what what did you first I, learn to to, to at work? The local library. Yeah. How old a, were you? A, a, I, I was, I would say, 16. Yeah? What'd you do? Uh, so I was a computer page. I was in charge of the computer room at my local library. And uh, I made, I guess, maybe about four and a quarter an hour. Uh, loved my job. Uh, I obviously wasn't doing it to uh, get, get rich and... Um, pay off my, my parents' mortgage, uh, but it was a good working experience. And then after that, I, I got a job working at Van Heusen uh, as a sales associate. And I remember I was making, I think it was four seventy five an hour. And one of, uh, you know, I would say the, the uh, early promotions that I got, maybe the first job promotion I ever got was Van Heusen. I went from sales associate Paying four seventy five an hour. Now you're going to have a whole new level of respect for me when I tell you about this major promotion that I got. <laughs> I then became the dress shirt supervisor. <laughs> supervisor. And it came with a fifty cent per hour raise. That's right. Not just some dress shirt associate. I was the dress shirt supervisor. And <laughs> exactly how many direct reports did this supervisor oversee? Uh, let me see. Uh, zero. <laughs> <laughs> Just you. That's great. Uh, the brilliant minds at Van Heusen figuring out how to make young men um, stay with them by giving them a promotion and title. That's good. That's good. Well, and they 50 cents. That's good. Yeah. No, and, and they put the supervisor part uh, on top of it, and I was uh, I was a true leader of the dress shirt department. Well, when I worked at the General Cinema Corporation, it wasn't for me just cleaning up those theaters and taking those bags of you know popcorn out to the garbage in Arizona. At one point, they said, we're going to promote you and let you rip the tickets when they come in. And boy, that's it. You know, it, it takes a lot of brain power to make that, that job happen. But you know what? It created two members of the United States Congress somehow through those experiences. So more power the to principal. them. Our Chief Executive Ticket Ripper. That's yes. that would be Chairman now. Thank you very much. The chair, um, chairman oh. Ticket Ripper. <laughs> All right. So you get through high school, and you decide, and then you're going to go to college, right? So explain to me. I want to know two things. Why? Why did you choose what you did in college, and why the law? And the second part is, what made you decide? Hey, I think I'm going to join the military. You know, the, the one thing that I knew for sure going into college was that I wanted to join the military. I, the, one of the first things I did getting to college was signing up for Army ROTC. Uh, I was hungry for it, and uh, I learned so much about leadership from it. I would say that when I was in high school, I started to get interested in the law uh, more so around the, the concept of how 
uh, laws get made. I got interested in government and the constitution and statute and process. Uh, and, you know, I, I would say maybe watching some of the you know, movies and TV shows uh, where prosecutors are making arguments and putting bad people away. Yeah. Uh, I wouldn't say that I decided when I was in high school that I was going to be a prosecutor, but I was intrigued by it. Um, but all I knew for sure was that I wanted to go into the military. Well, thank you for your service. Um, because not only did you serve, but you also served overseas and it takes a lot of time and effort. Walk me through a little bit about nine 11. Uh, you're a New Yorker. Um, explain to me what that did to you. Where were you? How did it go down? Um, and what did that do to you? I would say that my life has been broken down into two parts. I'm 41 years old. Half my life is before September 11, 2001, and the second half is uh, after it. And it's half my life was literally before and half after. And uh, it changed my life. It changed our country. It changed the world. I was uh, I was in law school that day, and I remember uh, we were in this big class, and uh, the way that it was like stadium seating, and the top uh, row didn't quite go to the ceiling, uh, so if you were outside of the door that came into the room, uh, you could actually, and you, and you were loud, you'd be able to hear your voice inside of the room because there was that space, uh, if you're mm -hmm. able to visualize what I'm saying. So uh, a person comes into the classroom, and a woman, and waves at another woman and asks her to come out. And I remember the professor joking around and say, oh, well, you know, I guess we'll all just wait for you. And, and every, a bunch of the people in the class are just laughing not thinking otherwise, uh, so that woman goes outside the door. And then I heard maybe the most harrowing scream that I've ever heard in my life. And it was that woman finding out that her, her boyfriend or fiance, I don't remember, was inside the tower, that the tower was struck. And that's the first moment that I realized that something happened and uh, i vividly remember so much uh, about that entire day and i also remember over the course of uh the time since you know the time after that from 2001 september to getting commissioned into the military in may of 2003 i was very very anxious just wanting to get on active duty and get into the fight and uh i i wanted to do my part to correct what i just saw and to fight for our country uh, our way of life and uh, get back at uh, those who deserved uh, hell to be paid upon them uh, there was a heavy price uh, that was due and i wanted to do my part to assist well you did and not everybody stepped up to to fight that fight i think it affected the whole country and uh I can't thank you and your family enough for, for your willingness to, to, to serve. And, and so for that, I want to say thank you. But let's fast forward here a little bit because you do join the military. And this is where you met Diana. And really, it is a miracle. But tell us the story, if you will. I want others to hear this. I've heard it in a private setting, and it brings tears to your eyes. Tell us a story about what you and Diana went through in having these miracle girls that you have. Michaela and Ariana were born 
14 and a half weeks early. They were a pound and a half when they were born. And hmm. they both went through intestinal surgery, lung surgery. They went through a lot during their three and a half months in the NICU. Michaela, uh, when she was two weeks old, she was two pounds. She was carrying an extra pound of fluid. So three pounds total and, and everything in her body, eyelids, uh, so much just popping out. Uh, and she was going through septic shock, 80 to 90% mortality rate. While she was going through septic shock, she had a stroke. And the doctors sat Diane and I down, and they recommended that we discontinue treatment and let her go. They said, if she survives, she won't be able to see, walk, talk, and she'll have cerebral palsy. They didn't say maybe. They said, this is what's going to happen if she survives. Now, she wasn't getting any better, but she wasn't getting any worse over the course of a period of about 24 hours leading up to this conversation. So we decided that if she was going to keep fighting, well, we're going to keep fighting too. And we elected to do very risky brain surgery on her. And Diane and I uh, went and said goodbye, uh, went to the waiting room, and we didn't know whether or not we were ever going to see her again. And the doctors, after surgery, uh, come back to the waiting room. They say things went better than expected. Michaela's not out of the woods yet. And I remember Diane and I high-fiving each other. And uh, the surgery left the left side of her brain, one-third of it as a whole. It was gone. No brain at all. But because she was so young and her brain was still developing – her brain recircuited itself around the hole. Now, remember, when they were recommending we were to discontinue treatment, they said if she survives, she won't be able to see, walk, talk, and have cerebral palsy. Uh, she went through her early intervention, and fast forward to now, uh, she's in ninth grade. The girls are in ninth grade. They're in honors classes. Both of them have a GPA of just under 100. And no long-term effects whatsoever in any way, shape, or form uh, for what she went through. So through their will to fight, uh, the miracles of modern medicine, the power of prayer, Michaela and Ariana had the ability to survive, to thrive, and they're doing amazing. And now Michaela says she wants to go to Stanford. You know, it truly is miraculous. If if somebody out there is looking to find a miracle, uh, you go meet these these kids because you would never, ever, ever know. I mean, like I met them years ago, and I there and you. I've heard this story, and I'm like, no way! It's not these kids. These kids, you could. There's nothing like. There is no way you could tell in any way, shape, or form. And it, it is truly miraculous, and I tell you, for you and your wife, Diana, to have the the guts, the fortitude, and the, you're right, the power of prayer along the way, um, more, I, I just, it really is miraculous. Yeah, we're, we're blessed. We got support that came in uh, from all over the place, a lot of strangers, the, but the, the doctors, the nurses, uh, they were at Georgetown University. And I, I tell you, I would not uh, wish the NICU experience on anyone. And uh, it was an emotional period of time because uh, you would look to your left and there'd be twins or triplets uh, that are doing better than your girls. And you're asking, why isn't it going as well as 
as it is for them. And then you look in the other direction and there might be twins or triplets having it far worse. And you're saying, well, you know, thank God it could be, it, you keep it in perspective. It could be so much worse. I remember uh, the last time that I felt sorry for myself as a parent, because, you know, I, I'm embarrassed to say it a little bit, but when you, you first have kids, it, it's a, it's a change and you know, life isn't about your kids before you have your first kids. And mm-hmm. I, uh, I'm, we're down in uh, the Fort Bragg commissary. I'm with Diana and we're talking to a woman who had three sets of triplets. She lost one kid from each set. Uh, all of her kids were special needs. She mm-hmm. had a shopping cart that was filled up and her husband was on another deployment to Iraq. Wasn't even there. So she was by herself with these six six special needs kids. And this woman with this great attitude is telling Diane and I about all the resources available to us at Fort Bragg for us to be great parents. And I remember right then and there, it hit me like, wow, I, I am not going to for one minute longer at any point in my life ever feel sorry for myself about what these girls are going through and seeing you know the challenge that other parents have and the other thing is you know we say thank you to those who deploy overseas we send them care packages and cards and that's important and that keeps morale up but when that woman was going to go back to her housing on base there wasn't going to be anyone waiting at her front doorstep with an outstretched hand to say thank you for your service and it's important that while we th- thank our soldiers, our service members who are overseas, uh, that we say thank you to our families. But you know, that might be the, the last big, powerful, emotional chapter of that story from what Michaela went through uh, to just a, a little while later being at Fort Bragg and, and really putting it all in perspective from the NICU experience for us to the commissary experience. You know, I, I'm so glad you brought that up because there there are there are always people that have it better than you, but there are always people that have it tougher than you. And I get buoyed up and, and given strength in my life when I find those people who just ordinary Americans who do extraordinary things. They didn't ask to be in those situations. They just do it and they just deal with it and they're positive. And, and uh, I think those, again, I think everybody hopefully we'll have those experiences and recognize them for the strength and the power that they bring. And it is amazing. You're listening to Jason in the house. We'll be back with more of my conversation with representative Lee Zeldin right after this. Stay with us. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. So uh, I got to fast forward because you got such a fascinating story. So you get back, you're raising these two kids. What in the world made you think, you know, I think I should run for Congress. Yeah, so uh, I wanted to spend the, uh, a career in the military. That was my plan. And all of a sudden, I found myself in the Army Reserve instead of active duty. I found myself back home. Uh, before I ended up with a family, my next assignment uh, coming out of uh, the 82nd Airborne Division, 18th Airborne Corps, I wanted to either uh, go be a legal advisor for 
uh, the Delta Force or not not be a member of the Delta Force, but be a legal advisor to the Delta Force uh, or go to Vicenza, Italy and join the 173rd Airborne Brigade. I had I had plans. I wanted to get challenged. I wanted the toughest assignments uh, and I wanted to make a whole career out of it. All of a sudden I have, you know, two kids and they're going through a lot. I'm off active duty. I'm in the reserve and I'm back home. But I still wanted to serve. And I was searching for ways to be able to continue to serve. And there was something in me. It was just a certain fire. You, you know about it. Whatever you know, yeah. spark went off inside you where you're like, I'm going to run for Congress. And I lost my first race. I ran for Congress in 2008. And I had I mean, I, no one in my family is in politics. No money. No name recognition, no volunteers. I started with nothing. And I was running against an incumbent congressman, and we lost. And I learned more from losing that race than I have from every race I've won since combined and then some. And uh, I came back in 2010, and I won my state senate race, two terms, four years. Got elected to the House in 2014, where I've been serving since January of 2015. Well, congratulations. I'm telling you, you you've done an incredibly uh, noble service in running and you're just one of those people of character and uh, it, it was so fun to, to, to serve with you. I, I need to tell a little story about you and I hope it's, I hope this one doesn't embarrass you. Oh boy, here we go. Here we go. So uh, I happen to get to know Rob O'Neill. We talked about 9/11. Well, Rob O'Neill is the Navy SEAL who his team, took out Osama bin Laden, and he happened to be the guy at the moment who fired the two shots and killed him. And uh, I got to know Rob O'Neill from my time at Fox News, and I said, hey, you know, if you're in D.C., I'd love to get some members of Congress together and have you really tell the story. And so um, we get, how many people are there? Eight or ten members of Congress, right? Yeah, and we that. we have this dinner. We have this dinner, right? And then he's telling this story. And, um, it's, it's just fascinating, you know, and again, you're from New York, right? And so at the end, it's kind of you and me and Rob just standing there. And what does Rob say? Do you remember what Rob says? Well, I'm actually, I, I'm wondering where you're going to, where you're going to go with this. Cause, <laughs> uh, I, I remember calling my wife and uh, this was one part of the dinner, which might be different than, uh, what you're thinking of. And, uh, my wife gets on the phone and I'm like really excited to tell her, like put Rob on the phone with Diana because, you know, Rob O'Neill was the guy who killed Osama bin Laden. And uh, Diana had like a flat tire. And <laughs> I, like, so Rob's on the phone with Diana. And in that moment, that's all that she says to Rob, like, will you put Lee back on the phone? And <laughs> the, the experience was not quite as cool for her as it was for us. We're hanging out with Rob O'Neill at an amazing dinner in Washington, D.C., and apparently Diana was sitting on the side of the road back home in the district with a flat tire. Uh, all right. I didn't know that. I feel terrible. I feel terrible about that. So we're standing there, the three of us, and this is the way I remember this story. And Rob says, hey, you know, um, I, I, I think I'm going to get a nightcap and, you know, well, I don't drink. And so, um, but he looks at you and you're like, no, nah, I don't think so. But hey, thanks. I love the story. I love your service. Lee Zeldin, he's from New York, right? Just, I mean, he's impressed. 
We were kind of in awe and thankful for his service. No disrespect at all. But what is it like, you know, these stories you hear about these members of Congress going out with all these famous people and having all these things. So we get in the Uber to go back to the hotel. And I said, you know, you just said no to going and have a drink with the guy who killed us all. (laughs) And it still makes me laugh that you said, nah, I just think I'll go with Jason. I can go back to bed. Oh boy, yeah, and uh, and and I, all I was thinking of. Uh, by the way, I've told that story of that dinner to so many people because you know it's your imagination for for proud patriotic Americans. You can and there's been some movies, you know, Zero Dark Thirty, and there are books that have been written. And I don't care if you're watching it on the big screen, you're reading it in the book, or your imagination is running wild. There is nothing like that story from hearing Rob tell it uh, as we did over that dinner. And I, I'm so happy you put that dinner together. I mean, he is. A, and I've got to continue to know him. He is an incredible American. And, you know, a guy who literally went into the fight thinking that he was never coming back, that it was a one way trip to serve his nation and to say goodbye to, you know, kids and family and not be able to even tell him where he's going or what he's doing and the gravity of how much that meant to America. And, um, but I, I still think it's, it still kind of puts a smile on my face that, I don't know. It just makes me think Lee Zeldin's got his head screwed on straight because he wasn't willing to go out and do something else. He's just like, you know what? Thank you. And great dinner. And I'm sure if you saw him again, you'd, you'd all smile about that, but it it really did make me smile. All right, Lee, I, I got to ask you a few more questions as we kind of wrap up here. We do this each time because we want to better know you and what and who you are. So I'm going to ask you some rapid questions if that's okay with you. Oh, let's give it a shot. Okay, no right or wrong. Can't prepare for this. You just got a letter rip. Okay, ready? Oh boy. Favorite childhood crush? Maybe it was right like in, in grade school. You know, uh, Wedding Crashers came out when I was in high school. I remember uh, a bunch of folks like Rachel McAdams. Yeah. Well, a worthy choice. I, well, I don't know what year that came out. That was high school or or college. All right, I'm going to well, go older, with Rachel you know, McAdams. The older crowd, the, the next generation up uh, was all about, I remember it was always about Julia Roberts, but I don't know, maybe it was too much of an age gap there for me. <laughs> all right, first concert you went to? Red Hot Chili Peppers, Madison Square Garden. Well, that's that's pretty worthy right there. I've told people who have listened to this podcast, mine was Michael Jackson, so I'm dating myself, Mile High Stadium in Denver, when I was in high school, so that that's kind of a tough one to beat. But Red Hot Chili Peppers, I bet they lit that place up. All right, favorite former chairman of the Oversight Committee who lives west of the Mississippi River? Oh, of course, Daryl Issa. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, Jason Chaffetz. Oh, dang it. There's I'm only two of us. you, my friend. Dang it. I've got to work on that. All right. Worst <laughs> thing you did as a kid. Oh, worst thing I did as a kid. I was, I was actually, I was pretty good as a kid. Um, I know, but some you got to have done something. I mean, I lit lemons on fire with, with you know, bottle rockets and and firecrackers and threw them at places I shouldn't have thrown them. So you got to have done something. You know, I would probably, I'd probably be filled with 
like lifelong guilt and shame for anyone I might have made fun of at any point where you're immature, you're in junior high school, oh, and, no and you say something at the expense of someone else. I mean, th that's probably the one thing that might live with you for the rest of your life. Just even saying the stupidest, smallest thing they may, they, they may not remember. Yeah, and, and you know what? It doesn't get any worse than that because they remember it and you still remember it, and you yeah. should because if you don't feel bad about it, it shame on you. I'm, I'm glad nobody's asked me that question. All right, unique talent <laughs> nobody knows about. Uh, well, you know, it's amazing. No one actually knows that uh, I'm a world champion black belt. That is uh, true. I did not know that you were a world champion 12-year-old black belt. That is, yeah. That's pretty impressive. I, I won the world championship. Uh, I, I was just, I think at that point, I would have to double check. I think it was a blue belt. Um, it was just before I earned my black belt when I uh, was part of the, the world championships in taekwondo. I was in Little Rock, Arkansas inspiring and it's a longer story but when you and i get together i'm gonna i'm gonna tell you about the secret tricks of how i won the world championships and i promise you uh it will be one of the greatest stories you've heard before well you go become the governor of new york and then i'll bring rob o'neill along and you can tell him the tricks because i'm sure he'll want to know it, it is, uh, it applies to many other, many aspects in life and uh, putting it into words uh, doesn't even quite uh, do it any justice to being able to show it to you firsthand. Show it to uh, me. Uh-oh. <laughs> I oh, better yeah. bring well, Rob O'Neill. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll use Rob O'Neill. We'll demonstrate on him instead of you. <laughs> All right. Person you'd most like to meet. This person could be alive or dead. Most like to meet alive or dead. Um, it, you know, it'd be kind of cool to just like sit down with Moses for a bit, you know, like Moses and Rob O'Neill. How's that dinner conversation? <laughs> okay, all right. That's uh, that's a unique answer. Uh, I, I'll, I'll buy it. The, the judges, the judges, give you a thumbs up. All right, favorite sport? Probably football. I would say I, I bounce around a bit because I like so many different sports. But uh, I'd say football probably pops number one. All right. If you weren't in politics, what would you be doing? Making a whole lot more money, uh, for one. I, I would say uh, either something in the legal field or something in the finance field, I would say right about now, you know, in business, owning a business. Um, but that would be a good question because it's been now I, I was elected to the state Senate 10 and a half years ago. And uh, that, that would be fun if we had that technology to tell you how life would have turned out otherwise if, you know, if I didn't go the state center route. All right. Just a couple more. Favorite vegetable? Uh, I'm not a big vegetable guy. I know. That's why I'm trying to figure out what the favorite one is. Everybody struggles with this question. Well, Madison um, Cawthorn said water chestnuts, and the judges did not buy that that was a vegetable. But it was a good creative answer. So anything will probably do. I could stick to uh, I'll stick to the basics. I'll just go with some carrots. Uh, keep me nice and healthy and strong. And uh, but I gotta tell you, if 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 you gave me a whole lot of uh, food in front of me and you let me pick one, I'm not the guy who's going to the vegetable first. Man, amen to that. All right, I got two more here. Most embarrassing my, moment. My, my parents, if they're uh, my parents are listening to this. They're going to be very disappointed in that answer. But Yeah, that's reality, though. Come on. All right, most embarrassing moment. 
most embarrassing moment. I'm driving. Uh, I'm riding my bicycle. How old are you? And uh, I was maybe about 12, 13-ish. Yeah. And uh, I'm actually with my friend I was telling you about earlier, Adam. We're at my father and stepmother's house. We're nearby it riding our bikes. And there were these six kids playing football on a really small field. And it, it was just ridiculous that they were playing football on a field so small. And so I hollered off, hollered at them, like, look at those dorks. And as I said, <laughs> as I said, dorks, I hit a pothole and I fell down. <laughs> they didn't know you were a karate superstar out of Arkansas. That's that. Well, I got to tell you, you know, the, the, the good thing about it was uh, it was pretty well timed hitting the pothole to the beginning of dorks. I don't even know if they heard what I said. I don't even know if I got it all out. As soon as like I hit the D, I found myself heading towards the, the floor. Airborne. But uh, yeah, car- karma, man. Karma hit me hard that day. Yeah, and instantaneously. All right, what was your high school mascot? Uh, so we're the William Floyd Colonials. So, uh, hey, that's, so that William Floyd, uh, where I'm from. Yeah, from where I'm from, William Floyd's one of the four signers of the Declaration of Independence from New York. And uh, so we're proud of our revolutionary era uh, pride here in this community. And uh, yeah, William Floyd, the Colonials. Well, you know what? That's more legit than I gave it credit for when I saw the Colonials. Now, Lee Zeldin would be the most famous person from your high school, except for... Do you know who the person is that's even more famous than Lee Zeldin coming from that high school? That would be uh, so Frank I, 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 Corica. I, that's right. No, Corica? Corica Karachi? Yeah. Who Karachi, also graduated. So, graduated. Now, yeah. So, so Tell people actually, who he is. So Frank grew up uh, next door to me growing up. And Frank was, uh, he went to the same high school I did. And afterwards, he went to uh, New York City to go to school. And he was interested in being in, in the entertainment industry, but behind the camera, not in front of the camera. And they put him with his uh, with a freshman roommate. He didn't know beforehand. The school just put him with a freshman roommate. And they be, ended up becoming really good friends. Uh, his roommate wanted to be in front of the camera. Frank wanted to be behind the camera. So when his best friend, who was his freshman roommate in college... Adam Sandler started making movies. He had his uh, college roommate, Frank Karachi from William Floyd High School, direct it. So Happy Gilmore, Billy Madison, Waterboy, uh, you know, a Wedding bunch of those singer. early movies. Wedding yeah, Singer. Directed by, yeah, Wedding Singer directed by Frank Karachi. It's amazing what you can learn on the internet. <laughs> I tell you, I thought it was going to stump you with that. But not only was he go to your high school, but you guys were next door neighbors. Next door neighbors. As a matter of fact, <laughs> I, I am having this conversation with you. Uh, I am inside my house. I had an 11 county swing this uh, the past few days as part of my race for governor. And uh, I'm seated right next to a, a beautiful piece of furniture that came from a uh, a yard sale at Frank's grandmother and grandfather's house because they lived the other house on the other side. Uh, so we're here with a little piece of uh, Frank Karachi uh, family 
memories right here, right next to me. So who would have thought that uh, if anybody had Frank Caracci on their bingo card for this podcast, uh, you can mark your spot, <laughs> but you'd probably be the only one. All the six degrees of separation from Adam Sandler. Adam to Frank to <laughs> Lee Zeldin right. to Jason Chaffetz. I, I win the bingo. Yes, that's uh, – see how much we've learned about <laughs> Lee Zeldin? Well, he's probably going to be your next governor there in the great state of New York. And I got to tell you, you're going to have your hands full. I, I want to thank you for joining us on this Jason in the House podcast. And uh, many thanks to you and Diana for your, both your service in this country. And you know what? Probably as much as anything, thanks for raising two amazing young ladies who are just going to go so far in life who didn't even think they were going to make it in life. And uh, uh, I'm just uh, thrilled to have you on. Uh, Lee Zeldin, thank you so much. Uh, thank you, Jason. Take care. I can't thank Lee Zeldin enough for his time and that amazing story. All right, time for some predictions. Joe Biden's finally going to go up and go into the halls of Congress. And I, how they do the social distancing and all that garbage that they're going to be doing, it's just fundamentally wrong. This is going to be one of the strangest State of the Unions ever. So here are a couple of predictions. I think Joe Biden will stumble physically uh, or in reading his State of the Union. We'll see, but that's just my prediction. I don't know that he'll even be able to walk up there and walk down without stumbling. And uh, I, I, I worry that he's just going to stumble in what is reading of the State of the Union. Normally in that hall, and I've been in there for a lot of them, uh, they have two teleprompters plus the script in front of them. Joe Biden can't read those small teleprompters. So I think they're going to bring in this huge screen for him to read. That's just a guess. Another prediction, and I think it'll be one of the shortest State of the Union addresses. Uh, the applause without everybody in there, it's going to be awkward. Um, but I just don't think he physically has the stamina to give a long address like we've typically seen from everybody from Clinton to Obama to to Donald Trump. I just don't, just don't think he can do it. And then I'm going to make my other prediction, which is he will actually drop his mask. He will actually physically drop it on the floor. That's just a guess. All right. I want to thank you for listening to the Jason in the House podcast. You can find more from the Fox News Podcast Network over at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd love it if you'd like it, rate it, and review it. That's important to this process. Like it, review it, and subscribe to it. I'm Jason Chaffetz, and this has been Jason in the House. I'm Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com.